Hey everyone, welcome back to The Local Youth Worker, a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Parrott. We're about to get to my conversation with Rebecca McLaughlin, who is the author of 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. That's available through Crossway Books and actually was released last week. Uh, it's a book, as we say in this interview, we would say every youth worker and parent should pick up. It's an, it's an excellent book that deals with so many subjects, but today we're focusing in on a few chapters that fit into our Season 9 theme on biblical sexuality. Uh, before we get to that, I want to remind everybody about RYM's Youth Leader Training. Uh, it will be taking place in April in Nashville. If you go to rym.org training, you can register for that event. Uh, Scott Sauls, Nancy Guthrie, Micah Edmondson, and others will be joining us uh, for a week of encouragement and equipping. And uh, it's, it's always a week that's just vital for anyone in youth ministry, whether you are full-time, part-time, or a volunteer. Uh, we would love for you to join us in, in Nashville. So be sure to visit that uh, link and register and, and come join us. Uh, for now, here's my interview with Rebecca McLaughlin. Today, uh, we welcome Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin to the local youth worker. Uh, Rebecca, thank you for, for taking the time to come on. It's a pleasure. And once again, we, we also welcome Linda. She's been on the podcast. Linda Oliver uh, has been on the podcast. I didn't say your last name because you've been on so much, Linda. Um, but Linda's coming back to kind of help co-host today. Um, uh, Rebecca, uh, you are the author of Confronting Christianity, which was released by crossway or through crossway in 2019 and and i know that it won some awards but but help me on this it was also featured on the ted talks summer reading list isn't that that correct and i would assume that'd be rare for a book like this yeah the, the way that it got in there was a friend of mine who's a professor at mit over here and uh, like my book is also a, a ted fellow and they were all asked to recommend books for the reading list and so she kind of recommended mine i think it was one of two books that had anything to do with faith on the wow. TED reading list and the other one was sort of a takedown so <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was thankful that they accommodated it yeah that, that's that's excellent um and you're also the author of the forthcoming book uh 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity which is going to be the the focus uh, for us today. And, and at the time of this recording, it is not yet released, but I believe it's March 16th when it comes out. It is, is coming correct? very soon. Yes. Okay. And then don't you have another forthcoming book as well? That's. I do. Uh, it's slightly by accident. I have a book coming out in April as well, which is going to be called Secular Creed, Engaging Five Contemporary Claims. Um, and that one's looking at, I don't know if, if where you guys are, you have yard signs popping up that say things like, in this house, we believe that Black Lives Matter, lovers love, women's rights are human rights. And sort of, mm. Those three usually feature, at least in my neighborhood in, in Cambridge, Mass. But then there are usually two or three other statements that can vary, whether it's no human is illegal or water is life or science is real. There's sort of other ideas thrown in there. But those three, Black Lives Matter, lovers love, and women's rights are human rights, tend to feature. And so the book is looking at, from a Christian perspective, how should we think about this cluster of claims and how, in fact, should we distinguish between things that Christians should strongly affirm and, in fact, originally were grounded in Christianity versus things that Christians you know, can't affirm and embrace? And, and also looking at how these ideas have got tangled up together. Wow. 
Interesting. And I, and I like how you said you accidentally wrote that book. Uh, <laughs> um, well, it's accidental that it's coming out a month after. <laughs> Ten okay. questions okay. <laughs> gotcha. Um, and I also wanted to throw in too that I know you're going to be a speaker at the Gospel Coalition's national conference in, in April. Um, and, and what's the topic that you're, you're covering there? Uh, well, fortunately for me and my scheduling, the, the Gospel Coalition Women's Conference is back to back with the Gospel Coalition General Conference, thanks okay. to COVID making many things shuffle around. <laughs> so at the Women's Conference, I will be speaking on the secular creed. I'll also be doing a session on um, public speaking, okay. which can I tell you how stressful it is to give a talk on how to <laughs> It's like if you don't give a good talk, it's really embarrassing. <laughs> I'm a little nervous about that's that. That's tough. Yeah, that's um, absolutely tough. Yeah, and then I, I'm I'm speaking again on the secular creed at the Gospel Coalition main sort of men and women conference uh, a couple of days later, and, and doing a panel um, with Sam Albright and Jackie Hill Perry, two of my heroes, mm -hmm. on uh, loving our neighbour when it comes to sexual identity. Wow, wow! Uh, you said that's a panel at the Gospel Coalition. Yes, that's at the Gospel Coalition Women's Conference. Okay. Wow. So yeah, there, there's a lot of, a lot of speaking you'll be doing there, but um, I know that's going to be uh, excellent. Look, but before we jump into, why don't you just tell our, our listeners uh, a little bit about where you grew up, where you're currently living, family, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Sure. Yeah. I, I come from the UK, um, born and raised there, grew up mostly in London, and then um, spent seven years at Cambridge University studying English literature for a really long time. Um played for the same soccer team, went to the same church and studied the same subject for seven years. So I'm kind of consistent. Uh, and at the tail end of that, I, I met a guy from Oklahoma. And I always tell people, it's actually, it's really hard to find a proper evangelical Christian guy in England. So I came to the conclusion I was going to have to outsource a bit. Um, <laughs> and we also strongly believe that we undervalue singleness in the church. We can talk about this later, but um, that's something I have a little bit of a hobby horse about because I think so often we um, we assume that marriage is God's best for everyone. And actually, I think it's very clear from the scriptures that that's simply not. And anyway, I'll, I happen to I'll, marry... totally, I'll totally set you up for that later, by the way, too. <laughs> Please do. I happen to marry a guy from America who everyone who knew both of us before we knew each other was completely shocked that we started dating. And then probably even more shocked that we got married. How could it possibly work? We're so different. And we are. But it's worked pretty well. Um, I then spent three years in seminary in London, a place called Oak Hill, and then my husband was finishing up his PhD at the end of that and was really keen to move back to America. I feel like I married the only American who really doesn't want to live in England. <laughs> it's kind of sad. Anyway, um, so he dragged me kicking and screaming across the pond, and we've lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts ever since. Um, I have three children who are 10, 8, and two, ten and a half, eight and a half, and two and a half. Um, tried really hard to have three girls, but I accidentally had a boy at the end. So we're still figuring <laughs> that out. That. Yeah. Um, and I noticed you said soccer and not football. And so I don't know if that's difficult for you to, to make that. I'm transition. translating. But here's the thing. In, in England, it, what you call soccer and we call football is basically a boy's sport. Hmm. So when I tell you I was the captain of my college soccer team, it sounds so impressive in America. And in England, it really doesn't mean a lot. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I was just about okay. 
Gotcha. Yeah, I know that that soccer football uh, has a lot of uh, yeah connotations associated with that. But um, thanks for sharing that. Thanks for for taking the time uh, to come on. Uh, those who are just tuning in to the local youth worker, uh, this is season nine of the podcast, and we are dealing with the theme of biblical sexuality and then looking at many different issues that are, are surrounding. Uh, God's Good Gift of Sex and, and Sexuality. Um, and uh, of course, your book, uh, 10 Questions, uh, de- deals with a, a host of issues, but but definitely uh, focuses in on same-sex attraction as well as transgenderism. And Re- Rebecca, when I, I think of controversial issues, you know, I think of issues like racism, abortion, feminism, same-sex attraction, and transgenderism. Those, those are at the top of the list. And you deal with all of these and more in your book. And I'm just wondering, you know, were you intimidated to write about all of these issues, but, but not only, you know, just address these issues, but then address them in a way that's designed for teenagers to, to be able to, to think about these issues. So how, um, how intimidating was that? I think for many of us, there is a list of questions that we kind of hope will be asked maybe by a non-Christian friend like, uh, can I come to church with you? Or how can I be saved? And then there's a list of questions that we honestly fear being asked. Like, isn't Christianity homophobic? What about the history of slavery and racism in America? Um, How can you say, like, why can't we just agree that love is love? And as I've thought about each of these questions, what comes to mind is that they, they at first seem like roadblocks, honestly, to following Jesus. And for many of on Christian friends, they'd be reasons to immediately just not even consider Christianity. It's like dead in the water from their perspective. But in each case, if you look more closely, what looked like a roadblock actually turns into a signpost to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so what I wanted to do both in, in the first book I wrote, Confronting Christianity, so aimed at um, an adult audience, and then in the uh, junior version, I guess, of um, 10 questions every teen should ask, is rather than letting those questions float around in our peripheral vision, Kind of not wanting them to be there and not really sure what to do with them to actually like bring those right into the front and say let's look at this and let's look at what the bible says about this and, and actually i think we get a very different perspective which ultimately always lands us where christians um at least bible um, faithful christians have always landed but i i think does so in a way that's um rather different than we might expect so for example when it comes to, to questions around sexuality. I think a lot of people, honestly, in the church are, are what a friend of mine calls accidentally orthodox. Um, I.e., they, they don't think that Christians can enter into same-sex marriages. But their reason for it, honestly, isn't actually because of what the Bible tells us about sexuality. It's because they've kind of been brought up on what legitimately could be called homophobia, i.e. a kind of fear and, and hatred of, of gay people. And so there'll be folks who kind of end up accidentally orthodox by agreeing with the Bible, but not actually for biblical reasons. Um, And then on the other hand, there'll be folks who sort of recognize maybe that they were brought up with attitudes toward gay people, which as they get to know gay friends, don't hold up. And then they think, wait a minute, everything I've been taught has been wrong. And so they'll throw out any kind of biblical vision for sexuality because of, of the other junk that's been mixed into it. Hmm. So I, I think, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm keen to do anytime I, I write or speak is just to try and help us sort of think, okay, what does Bible actually say and how does this really relate rather than almost digging away at those layers of 
culture and, and frankly layers of sort of sinful thinking that um, even as, as Christians, we've often imposed upon text. Hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's good. And Linda, look, I want you to get to where you uh, can ask a question because I'm, I'm talking too much. But, but let me say this, as you, as you said that, Rebecca, I was thinking of something you mentioned in the introduction, uh, and you, you were talking kind of as a parent and thinking of your, your own three children. And uh, you say the statement of not protecting your children from divergent ideas, but kind of exposing them to some of these ideas. I'd love for you just to explain that a little bit. And then Linda, I'd love for you to, to jump in. Yeah, uh, my book could have been called 10 Harry Potter Spoilers. Um, so forgive me <laughs> if, I, if I use a Harry Potter analogy here. <laughs> There's, there's a, a time in the Harry Potter series when um, the school has kind of been taken over by folks from the Ministry of Magic. And there's a particular teacher called Professor Umbridge who's in charge of, of teaching the students a defense against the dark arts, like how to counter evil in, in, in their world. And the ministry at that time is denying that the evil Lord Voldemort is back. And it's taking the view that actually kids don't need any really practical uh, understanding of magic. All they need is sort of theoretical idea of, of how maybe one day in the future when they're properly grown up and qualified, they might be able to defend themselves against, against the dark arts. And, and Harry and his friends come up with this idea of, of forming what they call the Dumbledore's army, where they actually take it into their own hands to train themselves to fight against the dark arts because they know that this is something actually they need to be encountering now and not something they can just kind of wait until they're, they're properly grown ups for. And I think sometimes as Christian parents, we can have a little bit of a Professor Umbridge approach where we say, you know, my job as a parent of you know, my 10 and two and a half year old is to sort of keep them insulated for as long as possible until one day, you know, maybe when they go to college, I, I sort of release them into this big world of ideas. But actually, I don't think that's what we're called to as Christians. I, I think if we take seriously the, the fact um, that our, our children you pray God can be legitimate disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus from an early age, then we also need to be equipping them for engaging with friends who are not Christians and um, ideas that, that come from you know, other sources than, um, than the Bible and, and Christian formation. And I don't think we need to be afraid of that. I, I think we actually need to um, give our kids the, the tools and resources and support that they need to engage with friends just just as we do and when I think even just a few weeks ago my my 10 year old was in tears in her bedroom and I, I sort of found her and I said oh darling you know what's the matter and what had happened was um she was writing a, a book with a friend and, and they'd had a disagreement about whether they should put a transgender character in their book my daughter said you know because she was a Christian she didn't want to include a transgender character in a book and her, her friend had very offended and said she didn't want to talk to her anymore hmm. And one of the things that sort of struck me as I, as I processed this with my little girl was that if she's in situations just like I am with friends who will reject her um, for holding to Christian ethics, especially in the area of sexuality and gender. And, and what she did was she explained to her friend gently and humbly why it is that she believes what she believes. She said that you know, she believes that God created us as male or female and he actually meant to do that um he, she apologized to her friend for hurting her feelings in any way that she had kind of been personally offensive um and her friend you know agreed to be friends again which was lovely 
But as, as I walk through a conversation like that with my daughter, it's just very clear to me that she, at the age of 10, is having to encounter all the same sets of ideas as I am. Um, and that if we wait until these, these sort of conversations uh, kind of crop up and we haven't given our kids any kind of formation up to that point, we're somewhat throwing them to the wolves, honestly, and, and, and we're allowing their, their ideas um, to be formed by their peers and by their teachers rather than by the scriptures and, and by us in the first place. So I guess more broadly, how I think about conversations around sexuality with my kids is I actually want to have them very early from the ground up rather than feeling like this is something I kind of want to postpone as far as possible. I want to give them a, a proper biblical vision for um, what Christian sexuality is even about so that when those conversations come up, they have that formation in order to be able to engage. But it's still hard, just like it is for me. It is. And it definitely, it keeps you on your toes constantly. It's just thinking, okay, wow, this is a conversation I did not think I was going to be having, you know, with my, my 10 year old. And then those things, it seems like new conversations are taking place. Yeah. All the time that we did not uh, anticipate, but Linda, please jump mm-hmm. in. Yeah. One thing um, I wanted to pick up that's been said, um, I think we alluded to earlier, uh, the idea that this book really kind of takes the concepts that were in your first book, Confronting Christianity, and kind of distills them in a way that you could put it in the hands of a middle school student, which I think is so great because I can think of so many sort of apologetics books that I would go, okay, I could hand this to a high school student, Mm -hmm. but the middle school students, I think they would just be like, what? I don't even understand what this is. Right. Um, And so I think that is a fantastic concept. Um, And I wonder if you could speak to like, what, what was unique to approaching these um, kinds of topics for that age, as opposed to writing it for adults, mm-hmm. how we need to approach it with them. Yeah, that's a good question. And, and the age for which this book is designed is a little bit, honestly, of a moving target. As you said, I'm really glad that you feel like you could put it into the hands of the middle schoolers that you work with. That's, that's very much my goal. And there was some debate as to in, in the title exactly what you know should it be. Ten questions every kid should ask. Think what should this be? Um, and because the reality is, and I'm sure you guys know this better than I do, kids develop at very different stages. Mm-hmm. And a 16-year-old and a 10-year-old could actually be in a similar space, sort of both in terms of their ability to engage with the text and be interested in reading a book like this, and also even in terms of their um, exposure to kinds of you know, challenges and issues that they're um, bringing up. So. I wanted to be somewhat flexible to say you know, we all really know our kids better than others do or if you know folks are youth workers you know your people and it might be I've, I've heard of you know 12 and 13 year olds who've read Confronting Christianity and found it really helpful but that would be pretty precocious of them to do so and, and probably it's you know, more something um, they should be gravitating towards the, the junior version. Um, in terms of how I thought about the substance of the book it, it engages very similar questions um, and one of the one of the reasons that I, I feel confident to do that is because, as I was mentioning before, I think we need to be talking especially about hard questions around sexuality with our kids from really early on. And I don't think I, I don't even think that's something that we're kind of forced into because of the culture out there. As I sit and read the Bible with my kids, you don't get very far in the Bible before before you have to explain, you know, mommy, what's a prostitute? Or mommy, what is sexual immorality? Or mommy, why is this, you know? We actually have to seriously edit the Bible 
if we aren't prepared to talk to our kids about sex. And what's more, I think we we miss on a really important metaphor in the Bible if we do that. Um, we're all, and our kids are familiar with the idea of God as father, which is clearly a you know, strong theme in the Bible and something especially that Jesus um, you know, highlights in the Testament. Most of us, honestly, I don't think are familiar with the idea of God as husband, which is a strong theme in the Old Testament. And then Jesus steps onto the stage of human history and says that he's the bridegroom. That's how John the Baptist describes him as well. You're thinking, well, wait a minute, how is Jesus the bridegroom? Well, he's stepping into the shoes of the covenant God in the Old Testament. He was a loving, faithful husband to the often unfaithful Israel. And then in, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we see human marriage as a, a little kind of scale model of Jesus' love for his church. And in Revelation, we see um, a great crowd shouting that the wedding of the Lamb has come and Jesus' marriage to his church bringing heaven and earth back together. So we have this, this huge metaphor running through the scriptures, which, it, as I understand it, is actually the reason why God made male and female and why he made marriage and why he made sexuality just as he, he made human kind of fatherhood as a, as a picture of his love for us. And also, I mean, the Bible also uses eternal metaphors for God. So I think in, in the best possible human mother, we get a little glimpse of Jesus's, uh, God's motherly love for us as well. The, the Bible gives us this, this beautiful picture um, where at marriage at its very best gives us a glimpse of, of Jesus's love for his church. And I don't want to rob my kids of that. <laughs> I want them to know that. I want them to know that that is actually the, the theological heartbeat, the center of this whole, I, the, the reality of male and female, the reality of, of um, sex and sexuality. So that then everything else flows from that rather than it just seem like, well, here's an arbitrary list of rules that God gives us. Actually, no, they all, they all flow from this heartbeat center. Uh, yeah, that, that's so good. And Rebecca, I'd love to kind of get into some of the specifics of, of what you address. Like I said, you, you cover so much in this book, but I know chapter seven and chapter eight, that'll kind of be our focus for, for this conversation. And, and uh, you know, there, there's a lot we continue to say that, that's good about your book. One thing in this interview, it, it helps me do my job as an interviewer and I don't have to come up with the questions because <laughs> 10 questions. So uh, chapter seven, uh, the title is why can't we just agree that love is love? And of course, mm -hmm. You spent an entire chapter unpacking that, but I'd love for you just to, to kind of give us some, some thoughts there of why, why can't we just agree that love is love? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's a very powerful uh, rhetorical statement that's become very much normalized in our culture. And and, and partly, and, and one of the things that I've understood more and more as I've done sort of more historical research, many of the issues that we have real problems with today as Christians, it's actually Christian sin that has got us here. Um, and that's that's especially true when it comes to questions of race, mm -hmm. but it's also true when it comes to questions around sexuality and why um, sexuality and race in, in public conversations are often so tied together. From a, from a biblical perspective, they actually pull in completely different directions. The Bible is clear from the first and, and throughout that love across racial and ethnic difference is is as sort of. Um, native to Christianity is, you know, care for the poor. It's actually where these ideas came from originally. Um, we see that in Jesus' treatment of Samaritans, the kind of hate, hated racial and ethnic group of this day. Um, we see it in the, the um, pouring out of the spirit at Pentecost, where people from every 
every nation under heaven, um, Luke tells us, heard and, and 3,000 responded. Um, we see it in the Ethiopian eunuch um, in Acts chapter 8, who, who becomes a follower of Jesus. So uh, the Bible pulls us sort of one direction when it comes to, to race and in a very different direction when it comes to sexuality. Um, but the reason these two have kind of got linked together is actually because of the history of Christian sin when it comes to race, or I should say white Christian sin when it comes to race, um, enables people now to quite legitimately say, well, back in the 60s, let's say, and prior to then, uh, Christians were saying that the, the Bible justified their racism. And just like that today, Christians are saying that the Bible justifies their homophobia. And so just as we, we look back now with shame at how many white evangelical Christians have, have acted in, in the history of America at this point when it comes to race. So our children and grandchildren will look back with shame on us if we continue to insist that uh, for Christians, um, marriage has to be male-female. As I said, there's a, there's a potency to that argument because it's true that, that Christians have abused the Bible in the past and to, do, to, to make um, racism and slavery and segregation look like they might be Christian ideas. But the problem is when we look at our Bibles, we actually find um, that you have to do the same amount of kind of careful editing of the Bible to try and make it say that same-sex marriage is okay for Christians, as you do to try and make it say that um, white people can subjugate and oppress black people. The, the problem with, with Christians um, in, in the past was not that they were listening to the Bible too much, but they were actually listening to it far too little. Uh, and so the, the equivalent mistake today is the mistake that you know, some Christians are making of saying, well, actually, we're not really going to listen to the Bible when it comes to sexuality. Now, if we do listen to the Bible and if we look at church history, we'll find that the, the idea that marriage is, is an exclusive relationship, um, that is especially that men are expected to be faithful to one woman, was completely countercultural in the first century when Christianity was sort of first springing up. I mean, the, in the Greco-Roman world, that would have been a laughable idea. It was fine for men to sleep with other women, their wife. It was actually fine for them to sleep with other men as well. Um, we're, we're totally naive if we think that only in the kind of 1960s and following was um, you know, sexuality, various kinds of expressions of sexuality seen as culturally normal. Actually in the, the, the Greco-Roman empire, um, gay relationships between men, various forms were like often actually not only permitted, but sometimes sort of celebrated. Uh, and so Christian sexual ethics then was really odd and um, transformative for how women were viewed and, and treated because uh, going that women went from being um, you know, either a wife who couldn't possibly expect her husband to be faithful to her or a kind of used woman. Um, that women actually were uh, now under Christian sexual ethics, treasured and equal. Um, and in fact, their the husbands pour themselves out in sacrificial love for their wives. So we have this sort of countercultural transformative move that, that the New Testament makes in, in the first century. Today, it, it, it feels similarly countercultural, but for slightly different reasons. Um, but I think we need to recognize that this is, you know, this is not a new situation that Christians are in, really. If we kind of dial back 2,000 years, they're in a somewhat similar situation, just being Kind of laughed out of court and for, for the kinds of things that we claim as Christians should be the case. 
And I, I think one of the, the other ways in which um, the history of Christian sin has sort of flowed into the, the issues that we have today is that, as I was mentioned before, Christians have often dressed up a kind of fear and um, dislike of gay people as a, a Christian, um, as Christian sexual ethics. Um, actually, I mean, if we if we read the New Testament, we're called by Jesus to love even our enemies, let alone people whose sexual choices are, are different from us. So there's actually no kind of Christian grounds for um, fear or contempt of other humans, um, you know, especially non-believers, uh, for any reason. Actually, um, but because there's been this sort of thread of um, of those sorts of attitudes kind of coming down the, the centuries and, and generations to us. We're then in a situation today where people are saying, look, two men or two women can be equally faithful to each other. They can be equally you know, committed as parents. They can be equally kind of good citizens in general. And so it's just crazy to say, and like can, can only spring from genuine sort of homophobia to say that it's not okay for, for Christians of the same sex to marry each other. Like they just as loving and frankly put all these examples of heterosexual couples who aren't faithful to each other or who aren't good parents or who aren't a kind of loving and, and, and good citizens in the way that we want them to be. What this misses is what we were talking about a few minutes ago, the actual reason why God made male and female and sex and marriage in the first place, which is to, to be that picture of Jesus' love for his church. And one of the elements of that picture is that it's a love across difference. Um, and, and that it's a it's a place um, where children like babies can be born. It's a sort of creative, life-giving element of it. So it, it's not actually just sort of arbitrary that God has, has limited sex to male-female marriage like that. At the same time, and I, I know this is a long answer, but it's a pretty big question. It's a big, it's a big question. <laughs> the other area in which we have, we've been insufficiently biblical is in our Christian vision for same-sex love. And I sometimes put this provocatively because you know, people say that the Bible condemns same-sex relationships. And I'm like, actually, no, the Bible commands same-sex relationships at a level of intimacy that we Christians hardly ever reach. If you look at what Paul says, he says that we're, we're one body together. He calls us brothers and sisters, comrades in arms. Um, he says he was among the Thessalonians like a nursing mother with her children. Now, that's, nursing is one of the most physically intimate things you can do with anybody. And Paul's sort of saying, like, that's how he was with the Christians in Thessalonica. Mm-hmm. And then in, in his letter to Philemon, he calls his friend Onesimus his very heart. And I would, I would kind of like to ask Christian men, I mean, John, I don't know if, how, how you would feel about saying to your close Christian guy friend, you are my very heart. I, I mean, say my that all the do. time, all the time. Right. Just, <laughs> Maybe you do. Maybe I'm you do. My kidding. guess is you'd probably feel pretty darn awkward. Because <laughs> we, in, in our sort of 21st century you know, Western Christian models, we've kind of bought into the idea that the only place for real intimacy is sexual and romantic relationships. And as you read the Bible, that, that's simply not what you get out of the New Testament at all. You get out the, this, this rich, web of relationships that are our birthright in, in Christ um, you get a prioritization of singleness even over marriage not because God was calling you know some people to be completely alone and to serve him in sort of seclusion but actually because there is this uh, 
strong sense of, of love and comradeship and deep sort of emotional and emotional ties between believers and that the church is a is a family that isn't just the kind of nuclear family and I, I think um because we've we've bought into that largely as as a sort of christian culture we've created a system where single people as as they get older feel more and more marginalized in church um and that's yeah that's completely against the picture and it also it means that um you know folks whose whose singleness is driven by same-sex attraction rather than by anything else sort of feel it especially kind of on the edges um and, and so one of the ways I like to sort of think about that mantra, love is love, is that actually Christians don't believe that love is love. We believe that God is love. That he, he shows us his love. He gives us pictures of his love in, in different kinds of relationships. We see that in husband to wife. We see that in parent to child. And we see that in friend to friend. If you think Jesus said, a greater love has no one than this, he laid on his life for his friends. So I think we actually need to have a kind of revolution in how we think about relationships within the church to become more biblical in order to actually be a, a effective um, apologetic or, or um, picture for, for folks outside the church to say a, a, a gay person who becomes a Christian should feel more loved and included in, in a family and um, even if they've left a same-sex partner to join the church like it, that should be what Christian love looks like. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, that's so good. So many good points there. And so much, again, I felt like I just wanted to jump in on <laughs> and ask you about, but so, so good. Um, Linda, I know you want to jump in as well and ask something. Yeah, you might have just answered some of what I was going to ask, but you know, that, so that's the chapter where you do jump in on singleness as well. Um, and I think that is something that when we talk about the topic of sexuality and whatnot, we, we do talk a lot about marriage and we maybe don't teach lessons on singleness as much and so students here I'm supposed to get married and I've had students ask me before you know based on what they see in the creation passage like doesn't that mean that God intends for everybody to be married because it's not good for us to be alone um you know so yeah if if there's more that you want to say speaking to like what should we be teaching our um, students about singleness yeah, yeah. And this is where I think we need to teach a strong corrective. And I do this with my own kids. <laughs> they're, they're so used to my lines that, that I repeat to them. Um, and one of the things I say to them is, I will be just as proud of you if you grow up and serve the Lord as a single person as if you grow up and get married and have kids. Both wonderful things, in my view. And, and I think Christians have often, with the best intentions, delivered a very different message to our kids. So I think of my, I'm very fortunate that my husband comes from a, a Christian family with parents who love the Lord and love him and have prayed for him you know, from the ground up. And one of the things that I'm grateful for is that my mother-in-law prayed for my husband's future wife. So, you know, praise God, there was a woman in Oklahoma praying for me uh, for years but that I didn't even know, okay? It's wonderful. The only problem is it then communicates to her son you definitely will get married. Like that is actually the, the expectation and the default setting. And I don't think that would ever, I, that, just to be clear, I'm not like trying to dump on my mother-in-law at all. I, I really appreciate the love that she was showing. And that was absolutely what um, you know, folks around her would have been encouraging her to do as well. And I think there are real things about that. 
But I think it then does create this sort of paradigm where people grow up and they think, okay, well, if I don't get married, then I'm sort of at best a like B team player. <laughs> you know, like I, I sort of miss the main thing that I was meant to. Do. I think this could be especially acute for women. Not to say I think it's a, it, I think it's a deal for men as well, but I think it can be especially acute for women. Not least because Christians, there have always been more Christian women than men. And that was true, as far as we can tell, it was true from the very first, the records we have of the early church is that it was disproportionately female in a world that was disproportionately male because women died in childbirth and, and um, baby girls were often abandoned. You look at a place like China today where the, the church is growing like wildfire, but it's disproportionately women. Uh, in America, the church is disproportionately women, not quite as much as in China, but still. And that's true. And, you know, basically, anywhere you look, <laughs> there are more Christian women than men. One of the realities of this is that there will always be Christian women who don't get married, even if we had this idea that everybody should get married, which, as I say, I don't think is a biblical idea at all. So, so what we're really doing is we're sort of training our, our, our daughters and, and our, our sort of nieces and our kids in our churches to think that there is this particular thing that they are called to and that if they don't enter into that thing they don't become a wife and a mother they're somehow sort of missing out on god's best for them this is again is why i'm sort of passionate about teaching my kids that actually the whole point of marriage at its very best is to give us a picture of jesus love for us so if you miss out on marriage but you get jesus it's like not getting to play with dolls as a kid and then growing up and having a real baby like no no mother holding her newborn is thinking, gosh, I really, you know, I feel so sad I didn't get to play with dolls. Like, no, you've got the real thing now, right? <laughs> when we, uh, if we trust in Jesus, when we enter into glory with him, no single person is going to be thinking, gosh, you know, I'm pretty sad I never got married and had kids. It's just, it's going to be completely crazy. It's like wanting a toy car when you're a grown man. Like, we're missing the point. Um, but I think we, we've so... Uh, what we've done, um, and I, I'm speaking in broad terms, I'm not saying everybody has done this, but I think as, as Christians broadly, what we've done is we have denigrated singleness and elevated Christian marriage. When what we should have done is elevated Christian marriage over um, sexual relationships outside of marriage. Like that's the, the juxtaposition. Um, so we should have a model for our kids, which is, there are two faithful options for Christians, both of which can be very good. One is to be faithfully married to one person of the opposite sex for, for life. And the other is to be faithfully single. And, and actually the church needs people in both of these categories and there are real advantages to being in, in the single category. Yeah, yeah. And I think those, um, those illustrations you bring up of the doll versus a baby, a toy car versus a real car are like so important because... That's kind of one of my hobby horses on this topic too, is I feel like so many people end up implying, well, if you're single, then Jesus is like your substitute husband until you get right. the real thing. And I'm right. like, actually, that's super <laughs> backwards. Like if the Lord gives me a husband on this earth, he is just a shadow of the real thing yeah. that we will all enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah, yeah. And the problem is it, it sets everybody up for disappointment. Mm -hmm. Because if we if we teach the you know Jesus is your substitute husband until you get married kind of thing, man, the married women are going to be disappointed when they realize their husband is not the savior of the world. 
like, <laughs> even a great Christian husband is is it not going to it's going to be a disappointment if you have your whole expectations of like this is the whole point of your life was to get married um and it makes single people feel like they're missing out on the real thing mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's so important and i mean that, that's something i mean just as we're hearing this uh, youth workers listening parents were listening i mean trying to convey this through, through the teaching of the students in the ministry to let them know um listen God may call you to a life of singleness and, and nothing, nothing's wrong with that. Talking to your children. I mean, as I think of talking to our own children of, you know, as they talk about being married one day or, or whatever, also saying, Hey, look, God may call you to singleness. God might not provide a, a spouse for you. And so just having those, those conversations with our, our, our children at an early age um, to value singleness. It's so important. I, I agree. I feel like we have, um, yeah, miss that that nuance of the conversation as what we're talking about uh, about marriage. And there's so much more I want us to get to. I, I do want to. Um, I mean, this is such an important topic as I think about transgenderism as well. Another lightweight topic that you deal with in in, in chapter eight. Um, I'd love for you to speak to j- just the um, the thought that that you hear so frequently about you know gender being just a, simply a social construct. Um, somebody, a coworker of mine actually shared an article that was uh, through Tumblr um, that said there are 112 genders that they were able to kind of accumulate. And then they said you could also kind of take some prefixes and suffixes to add to that 112 to make it even more. And so we have this, you know, cultural idea that gender is on this endless continuum. And we're, we're continuing to just think about this, this vast spectrum. So how should Christians engage the culture on that specific aspect of, you know, uh, gender simply being a social construct yeah yeah and again this is an area where we we bring some christian sin in here because we have got a history of having non-biblical expectations of, of men and women actually um i theologically i describe myself as as complementarian um and that mean that word means so many different things to different people <laughs> what i primarily mean by it is that when paul in ephesians 5 says Wives submit to your husband as the Lord of the husband, the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And when he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he's calling us actually to different roles in marriage. Not, be clear, not a role in which the wife is inferior, sort of subjugated to the husband. If we only had the instructions of the wife, we might think that. But actually, we then look at what, what Paul says to, to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's like dying on the cross. That, that is not a position of sort of lording it over somebody. That's mm-hmm. actually a position of laying down your life for your wife. So we've had all sorts of sort of poor teaching, to my mind, of um, mm-hmm. you know, biblical, what biblical marriage looks like, where we said things like, well, a, a wife's role is really to support her husband. And I'm thinking, okay, um, that's not like the, the, the call on the husbands isn't actually to, to lead their wives or to sort of, have a great job and have their wife trail along after them. Call on husbands is to love their wives with total sacrifice. So a lot of the, a lot of the paradigms we've taught there have been misguided. And, and we've also spent a lot of time trying to put um, gendered psychology on top of biblical theology. So, so we've said things like, you know, wives, uh, Paul says wives submit to your husband. Or Paul says husbands love your wives because, you know, men are kind of actually less loving. Or we've kind of... I don't know if you guys have heard sermons like this, but where um, there's been this 
additional like psychological um, add-on, I guess, to what the Bible is actually saying. What that then does is, is you know, if I'm not a naturally submissive person, just to be clear, I'm actually not. Um, I sort of think, well, this can't apply to me because if the reason is this sort of cultural stereotype of women being more submissive, then like this can't apply to me. So, so we we put some Christian sin into this in the way that we have added on a bunch of sort of cultural assumptions. Um, but what's fascinating at the moment is, is, is I'm seeing conversations around transgender questions play out, is that actually it's turning out to be very, um, very rooted in gender stereotypes. Because once you say that a, a transgender woman, i.e. somebody who is born male, but now identifies as a woman, is as much a woman as Linda or I am. Um, you know, it's one of the, the kind of slogans about transgender women are women. Then we, we've, we have to ask the question, well, what does it mean to be a woman? Um, if it has nothing to do with how my body is made, then what is it? Is it, is it that I like, am more likely to wear a dress than a man? Is it that I might like wear my hair in a certain way? Like, then all we have actually is the kind of cultural stereotypes around what it means to be a woman or what it means to be a man. Um, and so, so ironically, and this is something that actually some kind of traditional like gay and lesbian um, activists are, are pointing out right now. It's like, and, actually, and also some traditional feminists are saying, wait a minute, if we rip out of the heart of being a man or a woman, any reference to our physical bodies, then all we have left is gender stereotypes. Um, so I, I think there's something very kind of interesting, and I'm curious to see how this will play out in the next few years. Um, but we, we need to recognize that actually, you know, a statement like transgender women are women really doesn't mean anything at the end of the day. Uh, well, it, it means that um, there's some sort of imaginary, like, gender idea that you and I might have that's completely disconnected from our, our, our physical selves. Um, and so I, I think we kind of need to need to go there more than we need to focus on sort of arguing about whether gender is a social construct. Because to some extent, I mean, if, if you define gender as the sort of way that somebody um, who is either male or female expresses themselves in a particular culture, you'll see different expressions of gender in different cultures, appropriately so. You know, you'll see some cultures where all women wear head coverings, for example, or you'll see some cultures where, um, you know, I think I use an example in my last book of the, the film Braveheart, where you know, we think that having long hair, painting your face and wearing a skirt are all indicators of being female, but like, you see the guys in Braveheart, they have long hair, they've got face paintings and they're wearing skirts, right? These are warrior men like, doing all the things that women should be doing. So, it is true that some things that we have kind of clung onto as if they were biblical truths were actually gender stereotypes or gen or, or cultural ways of expressing our maleness or femaleness. And I don't think we have to necessarily cling quite as hard to those things. But if we go the other way of sort of ripping biology out of the equation, we're left with no idea what a man or a woman even is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, that's such a good point. Just the, the stereotypes. I know, um, Ryan T. Anderson in his book, When Harry Became Sally, which is now, I don't know if, if you all have seen it, you can't get it on Amazon anymore. Amazon's pulled it from their their list. But I know he addresses just the, 
ways in which the church has has aired and uh, you know just emphasizing placing too much emphasis on on gender stereotypes and just some of the damage that that, that is done and so linda i'd love for you to jump in on this as well mm-hmm. yeah one question i was going to ask is um i guess broadly speaking these topics are really difficult to talk about um mm-hmm. and if you had thoughts on how can parents, youth ministries, churches establish themselves as places where it is, it's safe and it's normal to be having these kinds of conversations with students. Yeah. Yeah. I think one really helpful thing that we can do is not assume that nobody in the room has personal struggles in this area. Um, So I grew up from childhood onwards, I was always more attracted to women than to men. Uh, Like, I mean, I don't even really remember being attracted to men at all. I was just like, I would fall in love with women after women um, growing up. And then we you know, and I got into college and I thought, okay, now I'm like, you know, I was telling myself, this is just a phase. I'm now going to university. I'm like probably growing up to start being interested in guys. And like literally like first semester, I found myself like totally smitten with my female Bible study leader. It's not a great feeling for a, you know, young Christian girl. And I, I didn't feel like this was something that I could be talking about. Mm-hmm. And I think often what we do in church circles, you know, maybe you're sitting down with a youth group and you're sort of talking about um, the world out there and LGBT people out there. Um, it, the chances are, I mean, statistically, a, about 14% of women and about 7% of men on average experience significant same-sex attraction. So if you have, 20 kids in your youth group, then like one or two of them most likely are going to be experiencing same-sex attraction. And so I think rather than making it a kind of them and us thing, um, one of the places we need to start is by saying, hey, like my guess is that there will be some, you know, folks in this room for whom this is a really personal issue. And I would love to be a safe person for you to talk to if you're experiencing attraction to, um, you know, other girls or other other guys, um, I think we need to be really clear with people that having any kind of like experience of attraction in and of itself is not a sinful thing. It's it, the question is how do we act on the basis of, of our attractions, right? Like, and, and that um, I, I think we've we've often made same-sex attracted Christians feel like the simply the nature of their attractions is something that they've um, you know they should feel especially ashamed of as compared to the heterosexual 14-year-old boy who's, you know, lusting after a 16-year-old girl, whatever it is, like, all of us will be experiencing probably at some point in our lives significant attraction to somebody we're not married to, and all of us are kind of in the same boat there, If we need to say, what are we going to do with that? And so I think we need to create spaces for, for kids to talk about their own experiences. And I think we also need to, to help them recognize that there's, there's so much sort of assumption in our culture that if you experience attraction, it's somehow defining of who you are, and it's something that you you know must follow through on. Um, that almost, if you're someone who's consistently attracted to the same sex, you're you're denying who you are if you don't engage in um, a relation, a sexual relationship with someone of the same sex. Um, and this is one of the 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 interesting uh, and sort of tragic rhetorical moves that people make is to kind of compare being gay to being black, for example, to say, well, you know, just as somebody could be 
born black, somebody else can be born gay and discriminating against somebody on the basis of their race is um, you know, no different from discriminating against somebody on the basis of their sexuality. I'm gonna say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> um, maybe I was kind of quite born gay and that I, I didn't ask for same-sex attraction. It wasn't something that I sort of set out to pursue. It was just something that kind of came to me whether I wanted it or not and I didn't want it. But I then actually have choices about what I do with that. Um, my racial heritage is something I'm born with and it just sort of is, and it doesn't carry any kind of moral weight. Um, my sexual actions are, do carry moral weight and I choose what I, I choose them. Um, so it's, it's almost dehumanizing to say, if you're attracted to somebody of the same sex, you therefore must enter into a gay or lesbian relationship. Actually, no, I have the, as a child of God and as a human, I, I have the right to decide what I do with my attractions and desires, just, just like a, a heterosexual person does. Um, so I think, you know, as we have these conversations with, with younger people in our churches and with our children, I think we need to normalize the fact that people, it's very possible that they'll, they'll be experiencing same-sex attraction themselves. Interestingly, whereas, as I mentioned earlier, it seems like about 14% of women, about 70% of men experience same-sex attraction, it's only 1% of women and 2% of men who are exclusively same-sex attracted. So the, the, the large majority of people who would find themselves attracted to others of their same sex could also be attracted to somebody of the, the opposite sex. Um, so somebody like me, who's you know, very much predominantly same-sex attracted, but has chosen to marry a man, I'm not like quite as weird as I look. I mean, I'm kind of weird, but for different reasons, maybe. <laughs> um, and so I, I think we need to yeah, normalize the experience um, and have it in the same mental category as lustful thoughts or kind of romantic attractions of a, of a heterosexual nature and recognize that each of the kids that we are seeking to disciple will have challenges in this area and we need to kind of meet them where, where they're at and, and walk them through that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's such a good word, Rebecca. And I, I'm thinking too, we, we've had Ellen Dykus come on this pi- podcast mm. as well. He's, he's a, a counselor and we were speaking specifically about pornography. And she said, you know, one way in which the church deals with this in a way that, that's not helpful is addressing it as a male issue. And so even as you're discussing it, you know, males and females struggling with pornography, I mean, even saying that it is so important, sends a message to the church. And so along these lines as well to um, assume that there are people in the room, in the congregation, in the small group, whatever it is, who are struggling with this and, and to be welcoming. And so those youth workers who are listening to, to be thinking about this. And one thing, just to, to quote you as well, I heard you in another um interview where you kind of gave a caution as we talk about these um, topics where you said something along the lines of, you know, we can think that uh, when we're engaging with someone over these issues, we could be defending Jesus when in fact we're defending our own ego. And so being cautious of how we just turn this into an argument that we're just trying to prove our point and win instead of, you know, as as Vaughn Roberts says, that these are not issues. These are image bearers we're talking about. And so let's frame it it kind of that perspective in our mind yeah and i I love uh, in first timothy when paul is writing um in chapter one he he lists um gay relationships as as one of a number of sinful things and then a few verses later he says this is a trustworthy saying worthy of full acceptance that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom i am the worst now as far as we can tell paul 
don't know if he was maybe widowed young or whether he never married, but he's a you know, single guy. Um, certainly no evidence that he ever had a kind of sexually um, sinful relationship with somebody. And having just mentioned the sin of gay relationships, he says he is the worst sinner he knows. I think that just really reframes the, the attitudes that Christians have, have often taken, which is to say, well, look at all these sinful people out there and kind of taking our own like self-righteous moral high ground. If the Apostle Paul wasn't doing that, mm-hmm. why, why would we think that we should? In fact, we need to approach anybody inside or outside the church on questions of, of, of um, sexuality with the posture of, I'm probably the worst sinner I know. I'm probably, you know, I may be straight as a ruler and I could well be the, the most sexually sinful person in this room full of LGBT folk. Like it's all of these things that like these things are possible. So, so just to have that posture of, yeah, we're probably the worst sinner in the room. Hmm. That's very insightful uh, to point that out. I know we're needing to draw this to a close. I had two kind of quick questions maybe, but Linda, do you have anything else you want to, you want to add or, or follow up on before we start to close this out? Uh, no, go ahead with yours. Okay. Um, the, the first was, I was just curious if you had any topic that you wish you could have addressed in this book and you didn't have time to address, or even one of the topics you have in this book that's been nuanced by our culture that you kind of wish you could have gone at that angle as well. Gosh, that is a good question. I, I did feel between confronting Christianity and 10 questions every teacher should ask, the transgender conversation moved. And so, or, or at least became more prominent. And so I, I gave more space to that in, in, the, in the adult one. And partly as well, because I'd sort of done more thinking about it. Um, there, is, there are plenty of things that I don't talk about in the book uh, that could be significant issues for people. But I don't, they're, they're either things that I don't think should make that absolute first cut, or they're things that I feel even more unqualified to write on than on the um, I do think that given what's gone down in the, in the last few months in particular, um, I feel an increasing burden to, to write and speak on questions connected to Christian nationalism. Um, and I think that uh, it is something that sort of a thread through the, the team book is in helping people see actually Christianity has been multiracial, multi-ethnic, multinational from the very first. Uh, and that our idea that we sort of white Westerners have a particular sort of monopoly or, or you know, mm-hmm. some sort of preferential treatment from God or that, you know, your country or my country is somehow sort of God's favored country over anywhere else. Falls apart when you bring it to the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really falls apart as well when you look at the, the history of either of our countries, honestly. I mean, I, I did the exercise of it's easy to sort of nostalgically look back to the good old days when America was a Christian country. And I'm thinking, OK, well, um, I wonder when that was, because we had a, a long period at the beginning where black people were literally enslaved and being brut- brutalized, raped, beaten, et cetera, et cetera. We then had a long period where there was sort of segregation and Jim Crow laws, where frankly, many of the same things were continuing to happen, even though slavery was illegal. That came to some sort of head in, in the 1960s with the civil rights movement. And, you know, we rightly look back to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, and others in the civil rights movement, sort of moral heroes in American history. Um, but we also look back to the 60s as a time when everything really started to go wrong from a Christian perspective. You know, the time when um, the sexual revolution happened, the time when you know, 
the early 70s, abortion was legalized. And we sort of look back to, oh, well, that was when everything started to kind of unravel in terms of America's Christian heritage. I'm thinking, okay, so, so when, when was this wonderful time in the past when America was you know, a, a Christian country, rich, like in, in, in all the ways that the Bible would, um, would describe one? You know, unless it's like the first two years of the 70s. I mean, I actually, I think we have that opportunity going forward now. I don't think it's we need to kind of nostalgically go back on as, you know, weren't those the good old days? Um, and I say that humbly, I hope, because I'm coming from a country which transported three million African people into America and sold them slaves. And I'm coming from a country with a history of colonialism and um, subjugating other nations sort of hundreds of thousands of miles away and, and where the poor have often been pretty poorly treated. So I'm not saying this as a kind of, you know, I, I come from this sort of wonderfully Christian country and you guys don't. And I actually think that um, the more I've learned about history on either side of the, the, the pond, the more I'm convinced that actually we, we kind of need to do some, we need to do less looking back nostalgically and, and more looking forward hopefully and seeing what we can, what we can build from here. Yeah, very important to bring up. And I'm glad that you, you do touch on that in, in your book, for, for sure. And so that, that's something that people can, um, you know, look at. I cannot remember the specific chapter that, that deals with that. Um, but yeah, very important for us to continue to have those discussions in the home broadly, um, you know, as a church. And, um, you know, as I think of that weighty uh, conversation, um, I should have thought about this next question because it's fairly lighthearted, but maybe it's <laughs> good to, to end on. Uh, it seems somewhat uh, uh, just irrelevant in what we're talking about, but your favorite Pixar movie, because I want to tell our listeners that uh, one, one thing I like about your book, I mean, you, you do so well in dealing with all these weighty topics, but then you bring in Pixar movies. You, you have, as you said, a lot of Harry, Sp Harry Potter spoilers in there as well, but God. Favorite Pixar movie, if you had to pick one as we're closing this. Well, my is, but what's the difference between Pixar and Disney? You know what? I think that's actually debated by a lot of people. Um, where there's, because okay, uh, I can tell you my favorite Disney movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go, go for it. Yeah. Gosh, I, I think it's Frozen. Okay. Right. Um, the reason is, I love how Frozen sets things up. So you you have two early songs, one by Elsa and one by Anna. Uh, you have Anna's. Um, Loves an open door. She sings with Hans, which is the classic kind of feel-good Disney. I've just, you know, met the love of my life. And then in the course of the film, that's completely unraveled. We realize that her whole love at first sight thing was totally wrong. And we have Elsa's iconic um, Let It Go, where she's saying, actually, what I need to do is throw off all restraint and just be myself. And that will be the solution to this these strange ice powers that I have. And actually by the end of the film, we find that no, the solution was love, not self-actualization, not unlimited freedom. It was actually community and love between her and her sister is what saves the day. Like that's, I, most other Disney films are constructed around a kind of central romantic relationship. And I love how Frozen does all the things that we were just talking about earlier it's not that it denigrates romantic relationships. You have that lovely relationship between Anna and Kristoff um, develops. But actually the self-sacrificing love you see between sisters. And yeah, so to me, I, I have all sorts of kind of Christian riffs on, on Frozen. I love it. Yeah, no, it, it's good. And we go back and forth between that and Tangled in our house. We, we like Tangled as well. And I, yeah. <laughs> 
Frozen 2 is an underappreciated sequel. I thought it was... Uh, I, I really like Frozen 2 as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you did not see this conversation ending with this discussion, did you? Um, so, uh, look, Rebecca, thank you for your time. Uh, the book, everyone is entitled 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. It's available through Crossway, um, March 16th. It will release again at the time of this uh, recording. It has not released, but I think it will be um, by the time this airs. But listen, every parent and youth worker should buy this book. Uh, I mean, it is, as we said, you can put it in the hands of teens, but I can see so many youth workers using this as a small group study, one-on-one um, -on -one discipleship and parents utilizing it as well. So cannot encourage people uh, to go pick out uh, pick up this book and, and, and utilize it in your ministries so rebecca really appreciate your time coming on linda thank you for coming on and helping out as well thanks guys